0: The story is told of a man who was standing one midsummer day in the middle of his lush green garden. And seeing the man and noticing the fine garden, a passerby yells to him, Beautiful garden. You and the Lord have done a great job. To which the gardener replies, Lord, my foot. You should have seen this place last year when the Lord had it all to himself. Well, that's supposed to be humorous, hopefully not blasphemous, but this story, in fact, reveals all too seriously and clearly our tendency to take sole credit for what we perceive to be our accomplishments. It's so easy to to fail to recognize and, and acknowledge the web of relationships and dependencies in which we, in fact, all exist. No man's an island, we've been told. The gardener took no account of this complex biological process built into the life of seeds. The gardener took no account of the sun's warmth, of the sun's light and its necessity for for photosynthesis. No account of the meteorological phenomena that produces necessary moisture for which we are all praying right now. No account of the vast array of microbes that process soil to make it supportive for growth. In short, no account of anything or anyone other than himself. And here's the sad reality. Such self-absorption produces, well, a, a debilitating sense of entitlement that I fear has become a defining characterization of our society and, of course, a corresponding lack of gratitude. It's about me. So what I want us to focus on today is a simple yet seemingly complex call to be grateful, to be thankful, looking at how that can translate for us into thanks living. Let's read Psalm 138. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods I will sing your praise. I will bow down toward your holy temple and and will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. When I called, you answered me. You you made me bold and stout-hearted. And may all the kings of the earth praise you, O Lord, when, when they hear the words of your mouth. May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. And though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he, he knows from afar. And though I walk in the midst of the trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes, and your right hand you save me. And the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Thanks living. It's it's a way of life that's characterized by, by giving thanks each day for the many gifts in our lives, the many ways that God has blessed us. And that's so easy to say, isn't it? I want you to all now go home and starting well this afternoon, I want you to say thank you to Jesus for something. And, and, and there's, in a sense, there's some power in that practice, but but somehow, I, I want us to see that maybe, just maybe we have trivialized the very passionate word. So as we continue in our summer series, which you are calling our summer play, our, our summer playlist, We're looking at a few songs from the book of Psalms that the Jewish hymnal made up of their top 150 hymns that were sung in their temple. Most were were sung within the context of regular worship like we were here this morning. And others were saved for for special events like we would for Christmas or Easter. Or if we were lining ourselves up Jewish style, we, we might have saved this Psalm 138 for Thanksgiving. Or for Thanksgiving, which I think is a challenging topic for many of us, no offense, but this word has, like others in the English language, been reduced to politeness or something much more superficial than intended. Johnny say thank you to Mrs. Smith for her kind comments about your unruly curly hair. Johnny says thank you Mrs. Smith, right? It's about politeness. It's it's about doing the right cultural uh, thing. It gets sort of reduced to that. Now, don't get me wrong. Johnny needs to learn to be polite. That's important. But to reduce it down to the sort of cultural expectation is like telling your newly married wife on her honeymoon that, well, let's take the word love. That has also struggled to define its deeper meanings. We love so much, don't we? But on your honeymoon, you say to her, Baby, I love you as much as I love my mother's cooking. (laughs) Or my car. Or my favorite TV show. Or golf. My suspicion is the honeymoon might just have lost some of its passion at that point. Maybe you might be booking a second motel room. The point is these strong, passionate words like love lose so much within our English language what I mean I mean think of all the things that you say you love let, let, let me give you 10 seconds when I say go and take your one hand and see if you can count all the things really quickly that you love all right you ready you're just going to I love and put it fill in the blanks and you've got 10 seconds to list as many as you can all right are you ready okay go count them out Just to yourself. <laughs> I don't want you to give any hints. <laughs> so how many of you got five? See, you weren't counting. We have to start all over again. No. How many of, you got, how many of those in- included money? Okay. Food? Favorite things to do? How many of them, well, maybe you don't raise your hand on this one. How many of them included your spouse? Oh, good. All right, all right, all right. Shame on the rest of you. Jesus, God, oh, there's so much, isn't there? But it's so easy to just slip into the language, use the words, and the problem in using the words at such a superficial level is it reduces the passionate level down to the same level. And so we lose heart. It doesn't, have, it doesn't carry weight with it. When we, we just kind of throw the language out. Well, it kind of happens the same way with the idea of thankfulness. The expression, thank you. Yes, it's appropriate expression when somebody holds the door for you. I, I get that. Or when handed a gift, while well, you're thinking about how you can re-gift it, and you say thank you, right? And try to look honest. But when we bring this casual thankfulness to Psalm 138, we're seriously shortchanging ourselves. Let me give it. Verse 1. Let's look at it. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I'll sing your praise. I'll just hit the, hit the, you know, it, it kind of sounds hallmarkish, doesn't it, right? I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I'll sing you praise. I hope you have a nice day. Thank you, Jesus. I don't know. We just kind of go into the passages. We look at the language. We've been conditioned to think in this sort of reduced kind of way and there's nothing within it that moves us. Did you get goosebumps when I said, I'll praise you, Lord, with all my heart, before the gods I'll sing your praise? We've got to find the depth to the things that we are looking at. Now, 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 to get serious, to get a serious hold on what is really going on in Psalm 138, we really need to understand... That the author David, and I don't know if this is King David or pre-King David, we're not given a clue on that, but he has, he's come through a rather tight scrape, a set of circumstances that were in fact life-threatening, we'll see. And it's out of this context that he composes this song of praise to the Lord, it's a response, it's a, it's a passionate response to some kind of deliverance. Verse 7. I walk in the midst of trouble. You preserve my life. Just read through that. I walk, oh, that's, that's too bad. When we can start to insert our life into the language and understand what David is saying... I think we, get an, we will grasp the idea that there's something very powerful going on here that needs to grab our hearts so that it can lift our souls above the mundane and teach us how, in fact, to praise authentically or more authentically. Now, the term midst of trouble is intentionally vague, I think. It allows us to fill in the blank. It can refer to, to times of, physical illness it could have for this psalm. in fact and in other psalms David he spoke of his body wasting away of being cast into life a life-threatening pit and had it not been for the Lord who preserved his life well and, and, and and he takes that kind of context perhaps and and all of a sudden he finds himself at this point of desperation and he cries out to God and he says I praise you Lord with all my heart Refer to this time of trouble, could refer to spiritual struggle. I wonder as a man how, how he must have struggled with doubts and, and questions during the long wait between when Samuel anointed him as king and before and between when, when he was actually given the throne. There's that long period of time in there, and we know he had his struggles. Psalm 38 tells us, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Lord, do not forsake me. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my God. No, no maybe his words of praise are because he's found himself in the depth of some sort of spiritual desperation, a, a place where he, he just longs to be free from something. Yeah, it might have been a spiritual struggle. could have been financial could very easily have been you, you see between the time of his anointing and the time that he received the throne was really quite a challenging period of time and as he got towards the end of that of that transition period we we know that he'd become well known as the the leader of Saul's army and that created jealousy within Saul and and Saul's out trying to kill him and, and so he gets this faithful band of men And they surround David and they spend a significant period of time just trying to escape Saul for their lives. It was tough. He was in charge of something. It was like his household. He had to figure out how to feed these men. And there were times when they were literally facing starvation. In fact, one time they came to the house of a priest and, and they convinced him to give them the show bread, the, the bread that was not, used, not, not to be used for a common meal in order to just spare his men's lives. And, and another time he encounters a, a woman, the wife of a very rich person, and, and convinces them in, in some way to, to feed them. There, there were times when he said, how am I going to make it? How am I going to pull through this? Tomorrow is coming, and, I, and I'm just wondering how this is all going to fit together. No, know there were, were probably financial times. Or how about a battle with a giant? I like this one because as we begin to understand the role that God plays in our lives, he doesn't just put giants in front of us. No, God very mercifully started with a bear. And a bear is attacking his sheep, and, 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 and in that moment somewhere he finds his ability to believe, and, and, he, and, and he defeats the bear. But I know that he walked away there with his eyes looking up. You don't tackle bears with your bare hands or whatever it was he used. He was a sling. And if that wasn't enough, then then God says, why don't we we work on a lion? And and he brings in the lion and and, and he uses the lion to to, to build another element of of David's strength in terms of his faith. So when it came time for him to face the giant, in some ways it was a no-brainer. I mean, he's looking at his, his Israelite comrades, those in the army. He wasn't, but he's looking at the army. He shaking in the, in the face of this Goliath guy. And he says, how dare you allow a man to jest to make fun of our God? And he tells the story of bears and lions, and he stands in front of a giant. And I know when that giant fell to the ground and his head is severed and everything is going well... There was something that was welling up in David that was more than just, "Well, thank you, that was kind of cool." There's a passion that begins to grow when you begin to realize the hands and the movements of God within the context of your life. But whatever this psalm has, a context defined by God, who, it, it, this, this psalm has a context defined by a God who deeply cares for his own. there's the point. Now, now to get this, we have to go back in this psalm. It's a passionate expression, this psalm. It's it's not a chronological order of some event. So to to continue, we need to go back to verse 3, where he says, When I called, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me, or you gave me strength for my soul. You gave me a kind of courage that's beyond myself. This, this is a common encouragement throughout the Psalms, this, this calling out to the Lord. Because times of crises, I, I used to get this, times of crises are also times of prayer that just made sense to these writers. When the tough stuff comes, the questions about tomorrow, the doubts that fill our heart, when we feel like God's abandoned us, all the kinds of things that can bounce into our life, usually uninvited on, on and we discover that that's not the moment to go victim, that's the moment to go on your knees. And, and these writers figured that one out, and they said, "No, times of crises are times of prayer." Just made sense. Moments when a suffering person or a suffering group of people cry out to the Lord in despair is seen as such a high privilege in their minds. The conflict was just an opportunity. The conflict was just a context in which they could move from themselves to something higher because the something higher is required in order to face the next step, the next day, the whatever. In a commentary by Rolf Jacobson, he he explains that this is the point that is made in this psalm. The singer says, on the day I called you answered me. Having come through the time of trouble, or, or more correctly, having been brought through the time of trouble by the grace of God. And the singer now thinks of, of the dark valley through which he walked, no longer is the time of trouble. He hasn't, he's not focusing upon the whatever behind him, the that challenge, that's no longer his focus. No, but as the time when he called out and when God answered. That's the climax to this event. It's what God said in the middle of the story. It's how God responded in the middle of it all. The time when you increased my strength of soul, he says. The the psalmist's point might be paraphrased this way. I once was weak, but now I'm strong. What a walk when you think about it, isn't it? Uh, the, The temptation is so easy to grovel when life sucks and it goes down and we're scared and we're wondering and we don't know. What's going to happen? Note of that, I give you a passionate thanks, O Lord, with all my heart. For it is now that the thank you takes on this amazing depth. It's something we do with all our being. It comes from something deep within and it cannot be contained. It's something that happens within us that overflows because the majesty is too, too great in order to contain within me. And we're filled with wonder and amazement that the hand of God can accomplish and we are simply wow. Now, the psalmist's passage through the time of crises has quite literally uh, been expressed in, in the words of Psalm 43. And, and, and again, the, this psalm, this little phrase, I think we skip over it so easily. But, but this is a passionate expression where he says, Psalm 40, verse 3, you've put a new song in my mouth. You see, song is, is an expression of something within Or in the words of Psalm 51, verse 15, and I want you to remember that this this expression that we're going to read came as the result of adultery and murder and and deceit. And yet, in, in all of that, there was his time of trouble, not to be minimized by three simple words, there was his time of trouble. But when he comes down on his knees and he begins to understand the reality of his context with his God, this is what he says, the Lord has opened his lips so that his mouth could declare God's praise. Oh, the enemy wants us just to hang our head and run around in shame and say, day after day, how could I, how could I, how could I? I don't know how we could. We've all been in the how could of we's, haven't we? And yet as we draw ourselves up from the dark valley, the time of trouble it's the time for praise because the truth of the matter is it's not what we did in the dark valley it's what we do in the context of praise because of it because all of a sudden we realize that in our weakness he's strong in our failure he loves and he carries this over and over and over again and so the psalmist does so he begins his, his song this psalm 138 with what are classic words of praise? I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. You see, giving thanks Old Testament style is really a passionate expression. Some internal feeling of gratitude or one bears their heart, sending God a, a thank you note, no, an intense thank you note. He's carefully selected the words. He's put in all the right adjectives and, and, and everything he can to, to Make sure that this thank you comes from something deep within him. And the thank you note that God desires is to tell others what God has done. You see, passion takes us there in ways that simple intellectual assent cannot. The, oh, I should do something about that doesn't carry us very far. But when all of a sudden we realize that the work that God has done within our very being was accomplished by him alone... And that we would still be swimming around in our mess and our misery, except for him. Well, that, that's the kind of motivation that takes us into something farther and farther than we could ever just plan on our own. His passion takes us there. For David, this passion ran so deep it was impossible to contain it just to himself. And he had to proclaim this good news of God's gracious actions to the assemblies of heaven, to the surrounding neighborhood, and to the world. And for David, he had to take it eventually to, in verse 4, all the kings of the earth. So they may praise you, Lord, when they hear what you have decreed. What you've done for me. How you got me out of my time of trouble. And the psalm in verse 1 says, Before the gods I will sing your praise, meaning that the psalmist imagines the vaults of heaven themselves resounding with, this, with his acknowledgement about what God has done for him. This cannot be contained to earth. This is going to escape into the very heavens. And the angels about the throne are going to realize that the miraculous things that their God is accomplishing in the lives of his people. And they know, they walk with us, those angels do. we got guardian ones, we're told. They know our slips and our falls. They, they know what's going on, and then they hear the praise. No, we're not just getting people down here excited when we get serious about what we say to God. We turn heaven on. This is something meaningful. This is, this is passion to the extreme. <laughs> The psalmist called out in the day of trouble, the day of calling, and the Lord answered. Or as the psalmist describes in verse 7, the Lord preserved him from the wrath of his enemies. He says, you preserved my life, you stretched out your hand against the anger of my foes, and with your right hand you saved me. I wonder two things around this passage. I wonder, one, if we just think that was reserved for Psalm 138 somehow. That's what David gets. I wonder if that's what it is. I wonder if if perhaps we think this should just be an act of magic. Somehow we're just going to kind of wake up, and we're going to call it to God. God's going to take the wand. He's going to do the sprinkly whatever stuff that Walt Disney does so well, and we're going to be good and fine. And so we we kind of miss the language, the process, the context of, of what's going on in the life of a man here who's been to the, to the bottom and, and, and sort of survived at this level and, and he knows the victories of Goliath and all those sorts of things. No, there's, there's a journey behind of this that we cannot lose. In other words, the psalmist confesses a particular experience of God's grace that could not be answered in any other way. I wonder, friends, if we, the church, are in a time of trouble, just thinking out loud here, a, t- a time of trouble defined by our silence. I, I think there's times when the devil, the devil has our tongue. You see, I, I know we, we can't muster up a passion. We need to practice passion. It's, it's how you get there. It's what moves along. You don't wake up one day with passion. It's the little ten-year-old boy who... <coughs> Whose, father, or whose friend's father takes him up for a little ride in his Cessna. And, and from that moment on, the, the guy starts to get kind of fascinated with planes. And every time one flies over or, or he sees one, he, he has this kind of growing desire that that's what he would like to do. And by the time he he gets to his adulthood and he has his 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 pilot's license and he's flying the big ones, all of a sudden you realize that the conversation of the ten boy who thought it might be cool and the guy who's flying it and can't talk about anything is passion. And it was a journey that took him day by day as he saw it and he watched and experienced and gave credit for. No, I'm not telling you that you're going to walk out of here because you've heard a sermon on passion or thanksgiving and that you're going to do it. No, no, there's, there's a practice in the passion. We live in a world so defined by science and logic that I suspect the things that should call us to passionate thanksgiving, well, have been trumped by doubt or suspicion or there must be a logical reason for it. And the result, our sovereign, faithful Loving, caring, all-providing, God has been forced into the backseat so that when someone should walk by our garden of life and suggest that God may have had a hand in it, we're blinded by our own self-driven belief that it was all about me. I think it's subtle. (coughs) I think it's just so easy to do. And in a world that doesn't like to hear God language, it's just easier to take the credit, isn't it? Whether it be in our workplace or in our neighborhood, over the fence, talking to the, the guy across it. I think it's just easy to kind of let it happen quietly, behind the scenes. Passion lost, taken down another notch. No passion. It requires practice, and practice will require faith building activities. It'll require bears and lions that lead us to giants. And and ultimately the defeat of massive armies of his kingdom's enemy. That's what's behind the context somewhere. (laughs) Excuse me. Eventually of Psalm 138. A passionate resolve that requires a thanksgiving and praise from all my heart. A faith that God is so connected to you that the circumstances that surround you day in and day out are covered by his grace. His sovereignty and this crazy desire to do what is best by us. Oh, how he's connected to us. So thanks living living requires us to step out of fear, out of timidity or embarrassment, and learning how to acknowledge the hand of God in all you do and all you have. And it may start small. Grace before meals is becoming a lost art. Maybe that's a place to start. So easy to sit down and and eat in our silence. And and, and in doing that, we're, we're saying to ourselves or our children or anyone else that's sitting at our table that I provided this meal. It has nothing to do with God. Sit down and eat hearty. You would think at least the polite behavior would be to say thank you. Maybe it's a starting point if that's kind of getting lost somewhere along the line but it could very well be a starting point if you meant it. Oh, to look at the things that sit on a table, so common, like most of life, so repetitive, like most of life, and somehow to train our eyes and our hearts to see that as a miraculous gift, the breath in our lungs. He gives it. And when we reduce it down to, it's just life, just what we get, it's what we do, We lose the passion. Another reminder that resulted in this passionate expression of thanks is the psalmist experience of God's help reminding him that he's not the captain of his own soul. He's not the master of his own fate, and this is a good thing. You see, some people reject the offer of help from outside themselves. There's something in us that wants to say we can do this. It's just kind of there we don't want to be weak we don't want to admit to the limits there's there's places in our lives that we do that but biblical faith starts with admitting our own weakness our own sin our own sin advertisement It's what time for one i think set free friends is not a seminar it is not a workshop It's a life experience that gives you the opportunity and privilege of examining yourself deeply so that you can find out if there's deeper causes within you that are preventing the passion from rising up within you. It really is an amazing evening and day that gives you a sense of something more, that we do not have to be locked within our own habits, that in fact there is a God cares sufficiently for us that he wants to pull us out of them. Anyways... 32nd ad our own sin our own limits thereby accepting the gracious mercy and faithfulness of the savior and then the psalm ends with a request for continued help because it is a journey we we so want the magic don't we we want the the moment we want to call out to the Lord, and when we read that he heard us, we then suppose that means he's fixed it, and now we're all tidy and fine. No, no, he hears us. What he says when he hears us is that, or what it means when it says he hears us, it means that he's entered the journey. He stepped into our time of trouble. He's, he's, he's listening to our desperate cries, He's probably speaking little words into our very soul that will help us into the next step if we should listen. Oh, no, it, it, this, this is a journey. And so in verse 8, the psalmist cries out after having said all of this. He's come to the end of this little little song. He says, do not abandon the work of your hands, you and me. Each of us are the work of his hands. And to be a follower of the Lord means to know that we cannot and need not do it all on our own. Folks, God calls us to something so much better than just the tip of a hat on special occasions. God calls us not only to polite expressions of thanksgiving; He calls us to a life of thanks living. I oh, hope that's not just a cute little slogan. Kind of. oh, what was the message today? Oh, same Thanksgiving. he Said thanks living, you know. It's not. I don't know how sometimes you take language and kind of screw it into our souls so that we get the idea that the expression is something that needs to run deeply within us. It's about saying thanks for this life that we have because apart from it, Jesus said we can do nothing apart from him. It's right to celebrate and to share the bounty of the earth and all. But folks, he calls us to something deep. It seems to me that the difference between thanksgiving and thanksgiving is between polite expressions of thank you and living thanks always. A well-practiced, passionate expression that pours from our hearts. The fact is giving thanks is really hugely important. I think that's what we're trying to say here. There's a God who deserves it. There's, there's a God that is, that is so connected to us that it should be our next breath. But the distractions around us, well, they're big. We know that. But when we live thanks, we are reminded of all the good things and all the good people that we have been given or gifted with our lives. We remember that we have been blessed. We remember that there is a greater good than ourselves. But the temptation is to then turn to our own self-sufficiency and to forget God. I think we've said that, have we? without contentment, without an acceptance of the wonderful position that God has placed you in right now, even if, in quotes, it's a time of trouble. The graces of God wants to move within you in this moment without us yearning for something more for tomorrow. There's a time to just stop And find words, simple words, big words, depending how your language works for you, in which you can just look around your house, look into your backyard, look over around your neighborhood, refuse to step out onto Alder Avenue and walk under the elms and not say, this is one incredible block. Look at what he's done. And to find amazement in it, because I can find amazement in elm trees, that I can find amazement in the other things that God wants to put into my world. That he gave me without contentment with what we have we're in difficulty in an article titled the power of gratitude in a November O magazine that would have been November American Thanksgiving I'm assuming one should have been anticipating the title was the power of gratitude one should have been anticipating some powerful reason to be very grateful and optimistic Unfortunately, the 25 unexpected things to be grateful for right now, according to the article, range from tips on ordering Chardonnay to losing weight while you sleep and how you can smell better for less. It's the best that O can do for us. We fill our lives with things only to find out that there is no filling. This is where thanks living comes into the picture. It's not trite. I know we've heard all the cliches around it, but we need to find something deep inside us where we dig down so that when we say the word thanks, it's not just a cultural cultural polite expression, but it becomes this this all-absorbing reality that there is a God worthy of such an amazing expression, and it comes from all our heart. begin to live thanks when we're willingly open our lives up to God and give God the first place it must begin there I invite the ministry team to come forward as we just kind of draw this to a conclusion as we do this as we humble ourselves before God and acknowledge that he is the source source of all good things our awareness of our blessings increases Our joy becomes fuller. We find ourselves in an attitude, in a state of grace, and and then, and, and only then, our continual thankfulness for our blessings will turn into a lifetime of living thanks, of living the blessings and sharing the blessings because we know in the deepest parts of our heart that God is the giver of all. We've been blessed to be a blessing and we desire to live in thanks uh, for the life that we have received, and it becomes a driving passion, something expressed from within the very depths of our hearts. So can we believe, then, in light of this, in the God of the writer of the psalm who concludes it this way? I love this. This is verse 8. Here's where he draws the conclusion. He didn't resolve his time of trouble. He called up to God, and God heard him. No resolve. In fact, here's, here's the resolution to the psalm. You will do everything you've promised. Any idea about the promises? Full, extensive, personal. The things He guarantees He will do for us. You will do everything you have promised, Lord. Your love is eternal, it does not run out. Complete the work that you have begun in me. It's the journey, it's the building, it's the growing. And as you ponder this psalm, as you, as you hear an, an overjoyed writer uh, giving praise with his whole heart, remember your calling is to be. Here, here's Paul's direction for us out of Thessalonians. is to be joyful always. That, that's, that's thanks living. It's to pray continually. That's thanks living. And to give thanks in all circumstances because it draws you closer to Jesus. The crisis is the opportunity to pray, remember? It is what God wants for you and for you and for us, all of us. In it, you will find the fullness of what God has in store for you, guaranteed. Blessed be God's name, day by day. And all God's people said, amen. It's a good word, it's a good word, thank you. Why don't you stand and sing with us as we close?